Amen. Thanks, Austin. So good morning again. My name is Jonathan, uh, as I said earlier, uh, one of the pastors here at Redeemer. And we are in a series, we've been uh, throughout the season of Advent, a series on humility. Uh, And so today, fourth Sunday of Advent, uh, we are finishing that out with this theme of joy. Uh, It means a little irony that I'm preaching on joy. Those of you that know me, I know that's the first word comes to mind when you think of me. But uh, it is a theme that the Lord has been working in me over the course of my life uh, to, as uh, a friend, a friend uh, David used to say, uh, if you believe the gospel in your heart, notify your face. And so my, my face has needed to be notified many times over the years. Uh, and I'm grateful uh, for God's work in that. But today is joy, and we're going to read from uh, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 39, reading to verse 55. The focus really today is on Mary's song, or Mary's Magnificat. Uh, You may be familiar or have heard it termed that before. Uh, You can follow along in the Bible you brought from home. Uh, If you're tuning in online, it will be on the screen. It'll be on the screen behind me here, uh, or in the uh, worship folder. So from Luke chapter 1, in those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me? that the mother of my Lord should come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is God's word. Say with me, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The phrase that we have been repeating, uh, which is kind of a a, a gospel maxim, it's a a word or a phrase rather that Jesus says a number of times, is he who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted And throughout this season of Advent and this series on humility, the idea is if Christianity is grace, if it's good news, not instruction, then really pride and self-exaltation have no place. They don't even really make any sense in Christianity. And the reversal that Jesus describes is one where when he uh, enters in and establishes his kingdom, it will be one in which the exalted are humbled and the humbled are exalted. That's the way it works. That's the reversal. His kingdom is like no other. And today, with this theme of joy, uh, 
the idea is there's a deep connection between joy and humility. In fact, I, I hopefully want to convince you, you can't have one without the other. You need both. Joy is the key to unlock humility. Humility is a key to unlock joy. Now, uh, there's a danger, of course, in spending four weeks talking about humility, right? Uh, somebody once said, I got a medal for my humility, but they promptly took it away when I wore it. So that's, that's the danger. I want to begin with a statement from John Piper, who was a pastor for many years in Minneapolis. He says this, and this is how I really want to frame this discussion and connection between humility and joy. He says, Christian humility flourishes in the human soul when we are standing in front of a window that looks onto the Himalayas of Christ's grandeur. And Christian humility vanishes when we close the window and stand in front of a mirror trying to see the authenticity of our own humility. It flourishes when we are looking away from it to Christ, and it hides when we are looking directly at it. That, of course, is the danger, that's the tension. As we talk about it, as we think about it, and as you examine even your own heart to, discu to, to discover, well, am I pursuing humility? Am I a person who would consider, other, others would consider humble? Hard questions, but ones that, we don't want to fixate too much on because, uh, again, if you get a medal for it, either one that somebody else gives you in a compliment that says you're really, really a humble person, then you start to wear it. It'll promptly, it'll promptly vanish. Okay, and we're going to use Mary's uh, song this morning. She really sings the first Christmas carol. She was the originator, the OG of the Christmas carol, "Joy to the World." It's right here. The infectious joy of her cousin, Elizabeth, is a boost to Mary's faith, and it really ignites her joy. And so we've got to trace her journey, really. And we're going to do it, uh, or really look at the song, trace her journey first, but look at it through the three headings. They're in the outline that's in your worship folder. The mighty God, the merciful God, and the remembering God. All three ways in which her joy encounters God as one who is mighty, as one who is merciful, his grace comes to the humble, and one who also is a remembering God, he keeps his word, which again is another testimony to him as a humble one, okay? How does Mary get to the point that she uh, gets to? It's important to trace her journey. That's why I went back and read from verse 39, and so if you have a Bible or uh, grab the one there in the pew, uh, it's page 856, uh, you can go back just a few verses to when the angel visits her. It's important, how does she get to the point that she gets to when she starts singing? She doesn't start out with joy or even humility for that matter, and we can learn something from her journey, not just about her, but about ourselves. So if you go back to verse 29, Luke says she's greatly troubled when the angel comes to her and tries to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The Greek word is she's taking an account. It's an accounting word. She's, she's, she's considering, she's thinking through it. In verse 34, a little bit later, she says, how will this be? Because the last thing Mary, or any other Jew for that matter, was expecting was God becoming a human. God is transcendent. He's holy. He's glorious. He dwells in clouds on mountaintops with Moses, certainly not a baby. And so when she asks, how will this be? It's kind of like saying, no way, this is impossible. You're crazy, Gabriel. But Gabriel says what? 
Nothing is impossible or will be impossible with God. In fact, as proof of this, your older cousin, right? Mary's probably 14 or so. We're not entirely sure, but she's pretty young, right? Now, Elizabeth's pretty old. And Gabriel says, your older cousin, even she's having a baby. That's how at work the Holy Spirit is, how crazy, how quote-unquote impossible all that God is doing is your cousin. And Mary responds in verse 38, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Simple faith. She's kind of resigned, resolved. There's faith there, but it's simple. It's not much more than that. She doesn't say, wow, I'm so excited. I can't wait to be a part of this. Despite her fears and her reservations, she trusts. And that brings us to the passage uh, printed for you in verse 39. Some amount of time passes. Mary goes to visit Elizabeth because she's excited for her cousin. But it's Elizabeth's excitement and her baby John's that really captures Mary's heart and excitement. It's the prompting, I would suggest to you. It's the prompting for her to sing her song. Everybody's singing in the first few chapters of Luke. Uh, Austin read that paragraph to you earlier. I mean, it's like you're in a Broadway musical. Or that new movie that Ryan Reynolds and Will Ferrell are in. I forget the name of it. And, you know, they kind of are mocking uh, it from time to time. But, you know, somebody will start talking and then the musical, oh, no, not again. You're going to start singing again. Sometimes that's how it feels like. That's what you're in in these first few chapters. Everybody is singing because everybody is excited. Everybody is full of joy because of this great news. Now, verse 41 to verse 44, and they're printed for you, these are really astounding. I'm talking mind-blowing verses because of the contagiousness of joy. Okay, look there very specifically and slowly. Just the sound of Mary's voice As she enters Elizabeth and Zechariah's home, just her sound, hello or greetings or however she said it, elicits a leaping in Elizabeth's womb of John. And that leads to Elizabeth blessing Mary. Literally, the word is benedicting, like what you get at the end of our services. But she just doesn't benedict her. She exclaims with a loud, she's yelling at her this blessing. At the top of her lungs, Elizabeth's joy unlocks her humbling herself, recognizing God's grace in Mary's visit. Amazing grace, John Newton said. How sweet the sound. How do we know that? Well, look at verse 43. Why, she says, why is it granted that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Why is it graced? How have I come to a a place where I get this grace that the mother of my Lord, notice she calls him my Lord, should come to me, should visit me, should enter my home. No one in this story is responding with, meh. Great news, good news of great joy, the shepherds receive. Meh. Okay. No one's responding that way. Jesus isn't even born yet, and he is bringing abundant joy. So Elizabeth responds this way, and she blesses her twice, right? 
She says, blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb, verse 42. Then verse 45, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary hears all this, experiences all this, and what's her response? Broadway musical, she starts singing. My soul magnifies the Lord. What she's saying here is, I must make much of the Lord. I must enlarge the Lord's reputation. I found joy because God is my Savior. This is a woman who's been told her life is changing forever and things will never be the same. This is a woman whose life would be forever changed initially in negative ways. Shame. She and Joseph, she's found to be pregnant What are people going to think? And she's singing, I must make much of the Lord. I must enlarge the Lord's reputation. She says, the mighty God has taken notice of me. She's humbling herself. See, true joy unlocks humility because of its object. Mary is absolutely all in. And what you find in these verses are a number of Old Testament references and allusions. Under the Holy Spirit's influence, she's singing of God's coming saving revolution that is going to come to pass in her child. He's been preparing for this for thousands of years. She looks down the corridors of time. She references Abraham, uh, which we'll get to in a few minutes. She is singing in wonder of the personal attention of the mighty God to to one as lowly as her. Personal attention of the mighty God to one as lowly as her. Look at verse 48. He has looked... On the humble estate of his servant. She's saying the ones at the bottom are the ones who get the attention of God. In the economy of Jesus' kingdom, and she goes through this beginning in verse 51, okay? So if you look there and follow along, the exalted are powerful, excuse me, the exalted and powerful are humbled and weakened, the hungry and thirsty are fulfilled. And those who are full and fat are sent away. It's the meek, the insignificant, the powerless, the forgotten. In Greek, the word for humble estate is the ones at the bottom. These are the ones who are valued and honored in Jesus' kingdom because they are the ones who know how needy they are. They know their failure. They know their lack. They can feel it. He's not the kind of king who comes to trample the weak and inconsequential. He's a king who searches out the neediest and the lowliest, and he lifts them up. He's turning the world upside down. He'll turn your world upside down, too. He'll upend your world. A few weeks ago, we talked about upending grace. This morning, it's upending joy. These are things that are cataclysmic. To be a Christian is to be someone whose life has been disrupted, has been upended, never to be the same again. Now, Uh, some of you are familiar with the message translation of the Bible or you've heard of it. Listen to the way the message translation does verses 51 to 53. This is great. It says, He has scattered the bluffing braggarts. He knocked tyrants off their high horses, pulled victims up out of the mud. The starving poor sat down to a banquet. The callous rich were left out in the cold. And what's interesting is Mary is describing something here that Jesus isn't even born yet. And she's saying these things as if he's already done them. She had to know, as a young Jewish girl, she had to know the prophetic expectations 
of the righteous branch or the servant or other prophetic descriptions that the Jews would recall as they thought about Messiah's coming. One who would deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness. In other words, one who would come and upend the way society had come to operate. Nothing short of revolutionary. And of course, grace is revolutionary. A social earthquake is in process, Mary says. Mary is singing and celebrating this work of reversal. But only those who humble themselves can celebrate this. One of the most powerful and probably one of my favorite examples of this occurs just a few chapters later in Luke's gospel. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can, you can turn there. Uh, I'm not going to read it, but Luke 7 records a story of Jesus attending a dinner party at a Pharisee named Simon's house. Okay, and as you read through this story, what happens is here's Simon on his religious throne, high and mighty, and he's looking down on this adulterous woman and thinking to himself, well, some rabbi this guy is, letting a woman like that touch him, I would never. In fact, Luke says, he was thinking to himself. And Jesus can see the judgment written all over his face, so he says, Simon, do you see this woman? And he turns toward the woman, and he begins to say to Simon, but facing the woman and directing Simon to do the same and directing everyone else in the room to do the same, he proceeds to publicly tell all the ways the woman has honored him and simultaneously identify all the ways Simon has dishonored him. And by the end, Simon is brought down from his throne and the woman of humble estate is exalted. He's doing it. All this, some 30 years after Mary was singing about it, he's doing it. He's opposing the proud. He's giving grace to the humble. And of course, his grace comes to the humble as the merciful God, right? So he's not only a mighty God that she comes in contact with and upends her life, humbles her and moves her, Right? Her joy leads to humility, but also humility unlocks her joy. It works the other way, too. A truly humble person will always be rejoicing because they lack an edge. They lack a touchiness. They lack the, uh, Paul Miller calls them, low-level grumps. Anybody ever experienced those? You find them saying with Elizabeth, why is this granted to me? Whatever this is. And the problem is pride fuels the opposite. It's a fixation on self, and that in turn produces a touchiness. It produces a person who's on the lookout for the slightest slight, a person who's always ready to defend themselves, right? C.S. Lewis called it, I love this, the unsmiling concentration on self that is the mark of hell. No joy, no freedom, right? It's Simon, the Pharisee from Luke chapter 7. He had this unsmiling concentration on himself. Well, I would never. I can't believe he would. You don't see any joy in Simon. You don't see him celebrating this woman's act of worship as she's crying over Jesus and wiping his feet with the tears, wiping his, his feet with her hair and that from the tears as she worships him, as she is grateful for the grace of and the kindness that he exhibits or had come to be known by. That's not Simon's experience at all. There is this unsmiling concentration on self. There's a movie uh, many years ago now. 
don't remember when it came out, but it's called Short Circuit. Anybody remember that movie? And the main robot character is number five. And number five fed on information. And so anytime he was lacking information, he would say, do you remember? Need input, need input, need input. He needed input to keep going. And, you know, in thinking about that, our egos are a lot like that, right? Our pride is a lot like that. Can you feel the slavery? Can you feel how tied up our hearts are in needing that? We say, don't we, someone is fishing for compliments? What happens when you don't catch anything? At, at, at best, you're disappointed. What happens when you don't catch anything when you're just fishing, you know, for fish? Disappointment at best, anger at worst. It's the same way. Compliments, approval, input, need input. My friend says the hardest thing in the universe for the human heart to overcome is a compliment. Because on the other side of a compliment, you begin to not feel your need for Jesus. You begin to believe what is said of you is true. And the more you believe it, and the more of those you receive, the more approval, the more praise you get, the less you feel that you need Jesus. Can you imagine being free from it? Look specifically there at uh, verse 51, okay? Verse 51, uh, the, the second statement Mary makes, she says, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. What does that, what does that mean? <clears throat> Tim Keller says this about that uh, verse. He says, the grace of God, or Mary's description here, is that the grace of God gathers those who are scattered and scatters those who think they are put together. Grace breaks what is whole and makes whole what is broken. The humble are those who know that they don't know. The proud, those who don't know that they don't know. And so if you think that you are put together, Mary says the promise is that the grace of God coming in Jesus is going to scatter you. And if you're feeling scattered and undone and confused and hopeless, his grace will put you together. Mary sings that God's mercy is available. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. She says his mercy is ready for the having to those who fear him. Anyone, anytime, anywhere, from generation to generation. Later in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah actually calls God's mercy tender. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians calls God rich in mercy. In another place, he calls him the father of mercies. Well, what's so powerful? What's so important? What's so significant about the mercy of God? The old Puritan writer said that God begets mercy, meaning there's a family resemblance between him and mercy. He multiplies them. And so the Bible talks about the mercies of God, new every morning, right? He multiplies them throughout the day. But here's the catch. The ones who get the mercies, the ones who celebrate them, are the needy, the wayward, the messy, the wandering, the lowly, the ones of humble estate, the ones at the bottom, the ones who hear of Jesus' coming administration and say, oh, that's good news. If you look back at the assurance of pardon from uh, Jeremiah, 
the words of the Lord through Jeremiah, he says, God, God, God says it doesn't matter how smart you are, how much you can bench press, or how much money's in your bank account. What does matter is whether you know God. Boasting that you know God, a God who delights in steadfast love and justice and righteousness, that's the way to keep from boasting in other things. Because if it's true that everything is from him and through him and to him, everything from him, through him, to him, we've got no room left for boasting in anything else. He's, he's it. That's it. And so starting to get it part of the preventative for what Piper said earlier, when you fixate on humility, sometimes if you begin to close the window and look in the mirror, the way to keep the window open is to be boasting in the one who delights in steadfast love and justice and righteousness. And that leads me to, lastly, Mary is celebrating here. Mary's joy leads her to say God is a remembering God. And Christmas is a confirmation that God does not forget his promises. His power is displayed in weakness, which shows humility has always been his way. He said, uh, she says, rather, in verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. And in the ancient world, the king or the ruler's arm was the symbol of strength. It was a symbol of power, influence. And so when the Bible talks about the Lord's arm, it's usually referring to a victory or a conquering action. A flexed arm of the king meant business. A flexed arm of the Lord meant business. And the prophet Isaiah says, the Lord has bared his holy arm in the coming of Jesus. And ultimately, Jesus would conquer his enemies, but not just by bearing his arm, by bearing his entire body, by stretching his arms out on the cross in the greatest act of love the world has ever known. And because God keeps his promises all the way back to Abraham, as Mary says, he's continuing to show himself faithful. As she says, my child will be the means by which God brings this about. His moment, Jesus's, his moment of greatest weakness was his finest hour, hour because he accomplished his most powerful work of defeating sin and death at his weakest moment, at his most humiliating moment. When the old theologians talk about the humiliation of Christ, they talk about his earthly life through the cross. The most, the most uh, excruciating, humiliating moment was when he accomplished his most significant and greatest work. He was overpowered by the wrath of his father. He was brought into subjection under his father's hand so that we could stand strong, so that we could be in his power, in his victory, in his salvation, experience strength. Andrew Murray, whose book we've been uh, referencing throughout on humility, which if you've not read it or haven't gotten it, uh, please get it. Uh, give it to everybody you know as a Christmas gift. Read it yourself first, of course, right? But he says this, it's just so, so good. Christ is the humility of God embodied in human nature, the eternal love humbling itself, clothing itself in the garb of meekness and gentleness to win and serve and save us. And what's more, he rules and defends not by overpowering with military might, 
But by serving and placing himself on the front lines of the battle, he says, I am among you as one who serves. The difference is ancient kings loved to sit on their horses atop a hill overlooking the fighting that was going on in the valley. They never entered into the fighting, of course. They would look on while their people were slaughtered by the enemy or while they were conquering their enemy. But Jesus is the only king who got off his horse, went to the front of the battle lines, gave himself in order to defend his people. That's humility. Mary ends her song by highlighting the mercy of God through his promise. She says uh, down in verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. His promise made to Abraham some 2,000 years before this event that Mary is recounting, she says, God remembers his mercy in the sending of Jesus. He always keeps his word, even to his own hurt. God is coming in power, but he's clothed himself in weakness, right? He's coming to break his enemies, but he arrives as a breakable child. He's coming to help Israel, but he arrives as the helpless one. That's the majesty and the mystery of the incarnation. That's the wonder of Christmas. Um, Tim, uh, Tim Keller said this about humility. He says, humility is so shy, if you begin talking about it, it leaves. So how do we, how do we battle for, for something that uh, has a tendency to leave when we start talking about it? How do we fight our way out of self-exaltation? If humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less, then it stands to reason. That filling your heart and mind with something other than yourself will help. But of course, not just any something. Again, John Piper, I'll read it once again. Christian humility flourishes in the human soul when we are standing in front of a window that looks onto the Himalayas of Christ's grandeur. If you come into this sanctuary anytime and just stand in front of one of these windows for an extended period, that's getting at something of what he's describing. You look at one of these windows and you see the Himalayas, the mountains of the grandeur of Jesus. And Christian humility vanishes when we close the window and we stand in front of a mirror instead, trying to see the authenticity of our own humility. It flourishes when we are looking away from it to Jesus. And it hides when we are looking directly at it. Very practically, I just want to direct you to some of the same things we talk about on a regular basis. How do we battle for this? Well, looking at the grandeur of Jesus, you got to get your eyes off your phone and into the Bible. you got to get your body into these pews and physically worship week in and week out with his people to be getting your mind off of yourself and onto him. Open the windows of the word of God and breathe in the air of grace, the crisp air of joy. There you'll gaze on the beauty and glory of Jesus. As the old hymn writer said, the one who was rich beyond all measure, who all for love's sake became as poor. And the promise is, the more time and energy, the more of our heart's attention we give, the more captivated we'll be. But the warning is this, don't expect humility to come by an occasional glimpse or a passing glance or a drive-by. It's not going to happen. 
The great thing about Christianity is God has said, these are the tools, these are the places, these are the opportunities where through the Spirit, I'll show you the beauty of Jesus. I'll show you the power of his person. And in his word and with his people, a cherishing of him will increase and self-concern will decrease. Don't you want that? Doesn't that sound attractive? The results of people like that are magical. And I use that word intentionally. Magical. Not in the Harry Potter way, but in the beauty and glory of Jesus shining through his people toward a watching world, a people who are less and less drained of self-concern and more full of the glory of Jesus. That's where humility will happen. Listen to this last verse as I close from the hymn of a little town of Bethlehem. Reminded me of this. The hymn writer says, How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Let's pray and ask for that uh, as we come to this table. Again, a graphic illustration right in front of us of the humility and the beauty of our Savior. Lord Jesus, we do praise you uh, for your work to save uh, that was fixated not on yourself, but as you emptied yourself, full of concern and care and love for us, we ask that as we experience that more and more, as we meditate on that, as that news, that good news of great joy fills our hearts, that our hearts would be instead full of joy and not self-concern, that it wouldn't be the unsmiling concentration of self that would not produce joy but instead a concentration on you and the wonder of what you have done beginning at Christmas all the way to the ascension and to this day. And that as we meditate continually and increasingly on that, our heart's affection would overflow into upending joy. An upending joy that would be infectious and contagious to those around us and ultimately to the ends of the earth, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, amen. Just a reminder, do join us uh, next Saturday, Christmas Eve, 4 and 5 o'clock, or excuse me, 4 and 5.30. Uh, you're welcome to either of those, or both, come to both. Uh, have some extra, uh, extra levels of Jesus and grace that night. Receive this uh, benediction. Uh, as I said earlier, Elizabeth comes in and she's loudly benedicting Mary, right? Uh, this is, I'm not going to exclaim with a loud voice, although I have a microphone here, uh, but it's the same. This is the promise that as you go, God goes with you, uh, that he has shown favor to you in the coming of Jesus. Uh, and this is for you to grab hold of and take with you into this week, wherever it is he's taking you to whatever work he's called you to. Okay, so receive this word. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.